0: Okay, it's block time, and today we're doing an interview with Carol Van Cleve. She's an attorney from Washington, D.C., and she specializes in the cryptocurrency space. Uh, a friend of mine recommended me to talk to you, and I was really impressed with our phone call, Carol, so uh, we decided to have you on for an interview. My uh, co-hosts today are Chris Kleeschult and Mike, Michael B. Casey. Hey, Carol. So, uh Carol, uh, we're we're excited to have you. Uh, let's get to know a little bit about who you are and your background, and then we can we have a, we have several questions for you, and we can uh, kind of go through those after after you introduce yourself.
1: Well, thanks, Mike. I uh, very much appreciate uh, being invited to uh, talk with you today. Um, looking forward to our conversation. Uh, As you said, I am an attorney in Washington, D.C. I'm a partner in the law firm of Baker Hostetler. We have uh, offices, I have about over 900 lawyers uh, uh, around the country. Um, I've been in the area of digital currencies actually long before Bitcoin came onto the scene. Um, I uh, represented back in the uh, uh, late uh, 2000s, the uh, founders of uh, a gold-backed digital currency system that some of you may be aware of, uh, e-gold. I was hired after they uh, uh, went through um, a whole uh, process uh, in the criminal side. And uh, at the end of the day, after they were indicted, after they had pled out with the government and they were sentenced, the government actually said their system wasn't illegal. Uh, Now you need to go get yourself appropriately regulated. And that's where I came in. When Bitcoin came along in um, uh, early 2010, um, I uh, um, started watching very closely and ultimately jumped in because I was concerned that... Uh, a lot of folks would get into it, not really understanding what the legal structure was that existed. I, a lot of people would say, "Oh, this is brand new technology, and uh, it doesn't. Um, there are no laws that apply to it." Uh, when in fact, that really wasn't the case. And uh, quite honestly, I wanted to really help people, um, so they didn't end up uh, in the uh, same kind of predicament that the um, the Eagle founders had, where you know what they. They were really in in brand new territory at the time, but after their case, there were some rules of the road that had been put into place. So that's how I got here today, and I I have developed in the last couple of years a boot camp, an anti-money laundering compliance boot camp um, for virtual currency companies with the intent of uh, providing a good solid two to three days of, of training on, Uh, What the laws are that apply in this space and to help people develop anti-money laundering compliance programs that hopefully head off as I said earlier um, potential heartaches uh, at a later time and shall we say law enforcement comes knocking on your door? So Mike, shall we jump into the question?
0: Sure thing and uh, Let's see so some of these questions are just kind of ones that we just randomly thought of, so we'll just <laughs> we'll uh, no 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 necessary rhyme or reason to the order. But uh, first question we have is: if you are approached by a law enforcement by law enforcement regor- uh, regarding the issues related to cryptocurrency, should you contact an attorney and uh, or who might you call?
1: Um, it depends on how law enforcement approaches you. Um, um, if uh, if it's part of an investigation and you're the seem to be the target of an investigation, you' probably contact an attorney very quickly uh It's very easy for anything that you might say to be uh taken uh in a different way than you might have intended it to be. Um, it's very important when you do call an attorney, again, depending upon uh, what the issues are, that you make sure that you have someone who does understand the intricacies of of uh, digital currencies, virtual currencies. Um, how do the laws apply? Because I, I have unfortunately seen more mistakes by lawyers than I would like to, uh, lawyers who don't fully understand what the laws are. and. Unfortunately, often the results are not, uh, not the best for your client.
0: Carol, just estimate, how many lawyers or attorneys do you think are qualified and fit that description?
1: <laughs> well, that's a loaded question, maybe not entirely, but, uh, uh, full competition for me. Um, uh, there are a number of lawyers who have varying levels of experience in this area um uh prosecute, or those who are former prosecutors uh, certainly understand the criminal aspects of the law um uh and certainly uh, i and i won't i'm i'm not a criminal uh criminal uh, defense lawyer myself but i have partners uh, who are and i will never have one of my clients uh um, uh, dealing with law enforcement, uh, having one of my colleagues and, and uh, uh, with those kinds of credentials uh, by my uh, by my side, um, it's not fair to it's not fair to the client to not have a good criminal defense lawyer. At the same time, you need to make sure that your team has appropriate understanding of the virtual currency world uh, and the different aspects of, of transactional activity as well as the interactions involved. Um, And that, again, is where we have seen some very good white-collar criminal lawyers um, who do a great job of of defending their clients but don't necessarily have the the grip on these issues that um, uh, someone like I I would have. Um, But there, there are a number and there's a growing number of lawyers who are getting experience and exposure and, I think, getting a better understanding to the issues in this area
0: okay uh thank you uh, our next uh, next question this one is uh a little interesting if if law enforcement does uh, come to you and uh let's see if you ask law enforcement to submit their questions to you in writing and give you say seventy two hours to respond in writing is this possible
1: oh <laughs> well, that's that's a that's a tricky tricky question to answer um Again, as I said earlier, it depends on how they approach you, um, how the conversation starts, and what your sense of where uh, you stand in their eyes. Are you a target of the investigation or are they just coming for you for information uh, related to um, something they may be investigating? Uh, and that's, I think, the biggest issue is it to, to get your hands around. And at the same time, you don't want to, by the way, you handle yourself in the conversation, become the target investigation. A really important issue that we haven't talked about yet, but under the federal money laundering criminal statutes, um, there is authority for the, the government, uh, for the law enforcement community to set up STING. Uh, operations, um, which means that they can go in posing as if they're doing a real transaction into a transaction real, real value. They can cash and they can buy Bitcoin, uh, for example. What I think over time is that, uh, that it's easier to, um, to handle an investigation into potentially illegal activity um, uh, by running a sting as opposed to having to take all the evidence that's been out on the table of prior actions and try to prove them out. Um, so I think we've seen this. We've seen this in the Espinosa case, for example, in Florida, and we've seen it in uh, some of the other cases that have been reported recently, where it's been law enforcement who, maybe through local bitcoins, has contacted uh, a seller and has gone out and negotiated a deal and has a direct interaction with the um, with the customer. So having said that, that's that's one way that you will encounter law enforcement. Then when they come and they start asking questions. Um, it's um, it, it's probably not a good idea to say, I, give me 72 hours to respond in writing. Um, I, I think you, again, want to figure out what they're asking and why they're asking them. Uh, you need to be very careful that you don't give um, uh, information about specific clients without getting a subpoena. That's a very fair question. If they start to ask about a particular customer. Uh, can they get their records? Um, uh, you do need to say, "Hey, I have I have certain." Um, um, I have to comply with certain laws, and I really need you to put that in writing. And they'll be they'll be good about that. They will go and they will get um, uh, a subpoena uh, and come back. But it's imp- incredibly important for you, as an exchange, if you're operating any kind of exchange operations, that um, you you get that kind of, of document because otherwise your customer could come back and potentially sue you for having uh, given out information uh, inappropriately. Uh, and, uh, well, let's, let's leave it now. We'll, we'll get back to some of these questions, I think, as we, we move along, or some of the points that I'd like to make in this area.
2: Thanks, Carol. So, so next question. Um under what circumstances are you required by law to disclose your cryptocurrency holdings? So this is both for businesses and individuals.
1: Um, it's it's a great question. Um, it's a question that's not a real easy question to answer. I think that I, I would start at the top and say that you're not required by law um, to to. Disclose your cryptocurrency holdings um, um, unless you have your cryptocurrency holdings in some type of account that's held outside of the United States. Um, so there's a, a provision of the Bank Secrecy Act which many of you may be aware of uh, if, you have, uh, if you have a foreign bank account uh, or a foreign securities account. Uh, and the same thing applies to cryptocurrency holdings, that if you're holding them in a foreign account, uh, that you do need to disclose those to the, to the government. Um, uh, those filings are required once a year. Um uh, and lots of information on how to go about uh, making that filing. The other thing that's important to note is that you do have requirements um, as a result of an IRS ruling uh, about the tax treatment of cryptocurrencies. as supposed to be treated as property. You do need to make sure that you're properly reporting for tax purposes, uh, essentially capital gains or gains on uh, gains or losses on the, your cryptocurrency holdings. Does that require required for you to uh, reveal the, um, the amount that you have, no. Um, now, here's where it gets a little bit uh, trickier um, uh, is, uh, you know, if And this is not – maybe I'm going to flip the question now. You said, are you required to want to disclose your cryptocurrency holdings? The question is, what about others who may have information regarding your cryptocurrency holdings? So, for example, an exchange, especially an exchange that allows you to set up an account and where those funds will be held in a pooled – effectively a pooled account. Uh, I say funds, your your, uh, uh, cryptocurrency in a pooled account. Um, in that particular case, your that your information is uh, on the books of that cryptocurrency, and when the IRS, who is responsible for coming in to do a bank secrecy act examination um, for FinCEN, uh, when it comes in, it can see all of that information, and I think many of you are probably aware of the uh John Doe summons uh, that's outstanding uh, with respect to coinbase where they're being asked to disclose all of the information related to their customers uh, and their uh, transactions for yeah a we've been of, following like, that for quite year.
2: some time is is that is there been any movement on that is that any closer to resolution or is it just still stuck
1: uh we're in that uh, that, that time period I guess Lawyers love because there's lots of back and forth, a lot of documents, uh, briefs being written. Um, I, it's not resolved yet. Um, I know that uh, Coinbase is uh, fighting very hard for uh, its its customers. Uh, I know that there are a number of other parties that are joining them. Uh, I believe that. Uh, um, uh, Coin Center is uh, preparing uh, an amicus brief. Uh, I'm part of a group of lawyers uh, that uh, does work uh, uh, in this area um, on a pro bono basis for public policy issues. And I know that the process is getting started with this group to put together a, uh, an amicus brief as well. That, brief that was
2: over a, a over a million people, correct, right. that the John Doe Simmons was for, or that they know transacted? Is some really high number of individuals?
1: Oh, it's a it's a huge number. I think it's I think I'm not sensitive far exceeds uh, the amount of data that's been ever requested uh, in uh, with other John Doe summonses. Um, folks may not be aware of this, but this is a technique that's been used now for a number of years uh, to try to get a, a handle on foreign bank accounts of U.S. residents. Uh and that's where it's been primarily used but not exclusively. And uh that that um using using this technique but it's usually been very, very focused to uh a specific the,
2: the word fishing or, expedition comes to mind.
1: Yeah, it's not it's not been it's not been generally regarded as being a fishing expedition. Um, my my firm, in fact, has a fair amount of experience in working with these gender summonses, and uh, one of the first things that you do try to do under any set of circumstances is make sure that that summons is, is appropriately narrowed. Uh, and uh, and you eliminate as many people as you possibly can that aren't really the, the focus of what the negotiation is. And certainly in this day and age, turning over anybody's account information and the scope that uh, they're requesting is a is a scary, scary proposition. Um, uh, Putting aside any any sort of invasion of privacy uh, that you might have uh, with respect to what you've done transactionally, uh, but uh, also uh, in the state of data breaches, um, uh, you have no we have no real feel for how well protected that data can will be when it's transferred to the uh, to the IRS.
2: Yeah, it could uh, potentially make a lot of people targets. Or theft or hacking well, or whatever. That's,
1: that's a <laughs> that, that's a different issue. It's a lot of data. Uh, yes, and you know, depending upon what that data says, that you know, there there are potentially there may be. I mean, I I'm hoping. Uh, we've known since the um, uh, middle of 2013. No, for, to, 2014 before. Tax filings in uh, it was March of 2014 when IRS came out with this position, so that it was in enough time that hopefully people were able to to go back and take care of their 2013 filings appropriately. Um, Again, we we are advising clients who may have had uh, um, may have had some confusion, shall we say, in those transitional periods of, of what to report and what not to report.
2: Well, thank you very much. Um, so uh, the next question we have is, are there any precedents regarding the handling of cryptocurrencies for personal holdings? And does federal law trump local laws regarding
1: it? Um, I'm not quite sure what you mean by handling of the cryptocurrencies for personal holdings. Could you give me a little bit better sense of of, of what you mean there?
2: So, yeah, well, just basically, it's you know, because there's guidance from FinCEN, you have all these different uh, regulations, or regulatory bodies, that, you know, some of them give you conflicting definitions for how this stuff is to be treated, uh, according to the IRS. Oh, okay. You know, <laughs> who do you listen so to? So, I, I
1: guess what you're saying is if you own some cryptocurrency, can you sell it to somebody else, and to what extent are you going to be subject to laws?
2: Yeah, effectively. I mean, in, who do you listen to where they contradict a couple of the different regulatory <laughs> bodies do?
1: Okay, so everybody's got a, got a beer in front of them or a glass of wine. Let's uh, take a couple minutes and talk about uh, the law. <laughs> Most that of us. Apply. I need to get one. Um, this is incredibly important. Uh, And we're seeing this playing out in the several cases that have uh, uh, been prosecuted in the last uh, couple of months or at least publicly uh, uh, disclosed in the last couple of months. We have some federal law and we have some state law. Uh, And you're right, it is definitely confusing trying to figure out what applies when. But probably most importantly is we've got a federal criminal law. Um, A federal law that makes it a crime to not have appropriately committed with the Federal Bank Secrecy Act, um, which is the one that says you need to register as a money service business if, you're, if you are, in fact, a money service business. Um, and it also makes it a crime to not be appropriately regulated at, at the state level under state money transmitter status if, in fact, you need to have a, um, a money transmission license. Um, then from there, this is where, it, you know, we, we have to go into the weeds a little bit to understand, you know, what the implications are. So bottom line is, is the federal statute, this federal criminal statute, 18 U.S.C., 1960 I promise I won't cite another statute, um, but this is the one to really know, is that it says that, you know, if you don't have, if you're not registered with Vincent as an and you need to be, or you're not licensed with, um, the states under money transmitter statutes, and you need to be, it's a crime. And I don't want to say it's a strict liability crime, but it's, it is, it in fact acts like that in many occasions that the law enforcement committee, prosecutors don't have to prove that you knew you need to have, have a license. All they need to prove is that you needed one and you didn't have one. And that's the piece I think is most confusing to people. It's not like somebody's going to come to you and say, hey, you need to have a license, get one. Um, uh, the burden is really on you to determine whether your business model um, needs a license.
2: So I know it varies um, so from state to state, but um, is, are, do you, are there any general guidelines to say what is the limit um, that would prevent you of, of coins that you could sell to somebody else or buy from some before you become a money transmitter what what's what's a are there any guidelines um, for the limits so people you know know they're pushing up against there's
1: it? no there's no um, um, no value that there's no de minimis value so if you sell below X you're okay um, the real test is are you engaged as a business in uh, selling of that cryptocurrency? Are you making it a business or are you just doing it for your own purposes? So, for example, if you have been engaged in mining uh, or, and, uh, or you get paid in Bitcoin, um, uh, if you're not as a business going out to do a conversion, and that's just probably the good case to say you're converting it into to dollars, um, finding somebody who will do that conversion for you, if you're not doing that as a business then you're you're, you're not subject under the federal laws to uh, regulation. Um, uh, but if you and this is what I believe one of the cases recently the uh, big point was made of the fact that when uh, the sale was being made to uh, the, law enforce- the, the, the law enforcement people that are on the other side of the table, uh, that a point was made is that there was a fee that was attached to this. And when you charge a fee, that means you're regarded as being in, a, in the business of uh, engaging the activity. Now, there's a question, there's some question as if you, you know, buy, buy Bitcoin at, at 2000 and then sell it at, at 2400 how do you handle that markup? Does that by putting markup like that does that mean that you're again engaged in a business? Um, that's where it gets a little bit uh, it's a little bit grayer. If you, if it's two thousand dollars today or what what is it today? Twenty two, twenty three hundred dollars. If you go and you do an exchange at that level, you're definitely not going to be. And that's there's no fee, no markup. Uh, you have a much better argument that you're not engaged in a business.
2: Well, that's a good explanation. Thank you. So yeah. um,
1: so and then let's switch over let me just for a moment though note that that's under that's the, the analysis from a federal perspective, under the state law, it's a little bit messier um, uh, in some ways, um, in some ways, I should say. It's, um, we've got 49 states, plus the district only in Puerto Rico and other territories in the United States, that have money transfer statutes in place. Um, not all those statutes have been interpreted to apply to virtual currencies um, and even where they've been interpreted to apply to virtual currencies in a number of those states, uh, the decision has been made that if you're just selling from your own inventory, it's not even an issue of whether you're in a business or not, but just selling from your own inventory that you don't, um, uh, you don't trigger the licensing provisions. Uh, um, We've done a lot of work in this area and have, I think, a pretty good roadmap of um, most of the states and where they come out on that issue. Um, however, I will note that at the end of the day, we, we always tell the client that it's safest to, uh, to make sure you have a letter in your finals from the states where you're interacting with residents uh, uh, saying that you don't need a license. And in particular, that came up um, in the Missouri case. Um, uh, if you go back and read the Missouri case and the Missouri case reads a little bit Differently uh, from um the other cases that are out there in it. Um, was that Trendon Shavers?
2: Uh, Which Missouri case? I'm sorry? Uh, was that Trend and Shavers? Uh, this
1: is the one about was uh, one about a month ago, month and a half
0: ago, six weeks ago,
1: I believe. Can't oh uh, um, well someplace.
0: I, I don't think we know what that what uh, happened and, or uh,
1: there have been let me see. in a in a nutshell. I, I don't want to take up yeah. Yeah, I don't want to take our time up here, but um it was a, a gentleman who was um um who uh sold sold some Bitcoin to law enforcement. Um I guess I think this is the case where he represented that he had um uh that he was charging a fee for it. Uh he was uh, had two companies that were uh, tech companies. Um and uh, he was prosecuted for failure to be registered with FinCEN's money service business and for failure to be licensed under state law for what he was doing. And um, I, I took great note of this because I have a letter sitting on my desk from the state of Missouri that says for the kind of activity he was engaged in, no license was required. Uh, and we even called the Missouri department the next day, uh, or even the same day when the, the, the case was announced, to say, hey, have you changed your position? And they said no. So this is, you know, an example. I, I'm, I, I strongly believe that he would have been prosecuted just under the failure to be registered with Finson, but they did make a point of saying that he wasn't licensed under state law from the state So um... uh, with respect to his business they would never have been
2: prosecuted under that provision. So, what what's your opinion on the more private, untraceable cryptocurrencies, specifically like Monero, Dash, and Zcash? And if uh, AML proves unfeasible for them, just because like it's you can't tell where the money came from, I mean, and I, you know, at least as much as cash, uh, how are how are regulators going to react to that? Do you think?
1: Um, I think there's a great deal of concern in the law enforcement community. Um, um, the traceability is not as big an issue for regulators as it is for law, uh, for, for law enforcement. Um, it's clear we're in an arms race of a kind of sort, uh, who can come up with the next best of uh, uh, more untraceable crypto. Um, I think, though, it's very interesting that FreeCash has been working very hard to with uh, the law enforcement community and regulators to uh, demonstrate that the benefit of Zcash is to provide certain protections in a transactional setting, but uh, there is a, an ability uh, to be able to trace it on the backside for law enforcement purposes. But the benefit of the Zcash is that it protects the customer's information in a transaction, so you don't have a data breach, data security issue
2: that is interesting
0: uh, um, i, I want to go ahead so, and, and i'm oh.
1: and i'm guessing what we will be dealing with is much like we've seen with bitcoin it's, it's taken you know several years but there are tools that have been developed that will help the law enforcement community better you know, get a handle on the transaction so, activity so i, I guess uh, it's definitely it's an incredible challenge so,
0: yeah i was gonna say i, I guess only time will tell because bitcoin is just so much inherently p- transparent and public with their stuff versus like the idea of you know these zero knowledge proofs so i i i'm not sure if uh i think what we're getting at is if they're not able to build those tool sets to be able to trace stuff are there, Are they just going to try to make it completely illegal yeah, they're going to
2: try to ban it or do you think if they can't get it, any it's visibility? an interesting
1: it's an interesting question because going back probably three years ago there was a certain amount of buzz. Uh, in um, in the legal community, that uh, that they might try to go after the creators of the code, um, uh, you know, to put more burdens, uh, just to to more put more constraints around the creators of the code. That if you're going to put something out there that is an untraceable code, you're going to be responsible for. Um, uh, facilitating money laundering
2: that's pretty that's, interesting that's how I did that play out like that conversation that's that's very relevant <laughs> <laughs> you sound a little
1: nervous though. i uh, uh so uh, due uh, to your
0: recommendation uh, i do have a beer in front of me now carol <laughs>
1: okay good um the um uh, this, this was there was some conversation on it. Um, I haven't heard a lot about it um, um, since it sort of surfaced initially. But uh, I don't, I, I don't necessarily rule anything out over the longer term. Uh, we do have our money laundering criminal statutes are set up in such a way that uh, effectively you're not supposed to be laundering the funds yourself. Um, You're not supposed to be aiding and abetting someone in laundering the funds, and you're not supposed to be willfully blind to it. Um, Whether this would be considered aiding and abetting someone by writing a code that would then allow someone to be able to move funds around, and especially if you demonstrate that there's some sort of a benefit that was coming back to the creator of the code uh, that um, you would have, you you might have potential grounds uh, for prosecution it would be probably pretty messy and that's probably why we haven't necessarily seen that kind of prosecution date.
2: yeah i for one i hope it doesn't come to that just i mean because it seems at odds with free speech i mean it's it's open source code there are many contributors it's, it can't be just one person but i don't know it's an interesting situation
1: well and that's That's certainly that's certainly an argument that was put out there three years ago, um, and certainly by the creators of Dash, very firm in the the free speech aspects of it. Um, I'm not a constitutional law specialist by any means uh, expert, uh, but I do know that free speech sometimes will yield when you have situations where there's a you know, huge abuse that's posing a danger to, um, uh, to people. And I think that you know, the, sort of the worst case scenario is where you could tie some serious terrorist activity to the use of a particular uh, protocol.
0: I was just going to make a comment
2: that uh, you said you weren't a, a constitutional specialist. Uh, based on the Supreme Court decisions of the last fifty years, I don't think the Supreme Court justices are either. That's just my commentary. So. It's. Um,
1: I I respect I respect our rights, but uh, even when I was in law school, I was uh, somewhat dubious of, of the uh, that area of practice. But uh, I have some colleagues who are very fine uh, constitutional um, uh, lawyers and have done some incredibly good work over the years and uh, free speech is a very important one for us to preserve, especially in this this, uh, time.
0: Okay, you ready for this next one, Carol? Okay. All right. ICOs are becoming increasingly popular. Do you see potential regulatory problems with them? Are they unregistered securities or what the hell are they?
1: This is probably the hottest issue of the day. Not only are the ICOs getting bigger by the day, uh, I think there are rumors circulating, maybe one coming out soon. I guess this week we saw one for what, 153 million. Well, if if you uh, go off the to date,
0: if you go off the market cap of Bancor, I think it hit like what 1.5 billion or something. Or what was the one that hit? One of them hit 1.5 billion. Iota. That's, Iota that's, that you
1: yeah. have to interpret appropriately. That that <laughs> yeah, the I know. market channel, but they only went to market with, I believe, five percent of I, I, the, the. available But token.
0: these valuations are just insane. They're insane. I think we all agree that these valuations are in are, are crazy. But uh, anyways, what do you it what is, do you see listen, as far as regulatory? Is,
1: this, is a, this is a fairly complicated issue we're dealing with here. So the the complications are that not all ICOs are. Created uh, equally, they're not. You have a real spectrum of ICOs. You have on one side where they're pure equity investment tools, a way to raise some some funding to allow early stage ideas to be able to move forward. And then in other cases, you have the tokens that are being issued, you know, not unlike what Ethereum did, where the tokens have a real function, a, a network utility. Um, uh, and you need to get those out there in order to be able to take advantage of the the value that that, that um, um, protocol has. Uh, um, uh, and and so I think that's one of the major issues. And then in between, you have you know all sorts of variations on the theme i uh, the s e c uh securities enforcement- Commit- uh Securities, and- <laughs> securities exchange <laughs> excuse me it's getting late in the day here uh uh the securities exchange commission uh has uh issued some decisions uh related to um, um bitcoin or cryptocurrencies and i think it's important to note that uh with the s e c which would be the primary regulator in this arena um you have uh its approach to regulation is really through enforcement actions, and that's how we learn where the lines are in uh, what happens. Um, so we've seen someone uh, raise illiquities for Bitcoin uh, and get in trouble for, uh, for doing an un- unregistered uh, public uh, offering. Um, we've seen some Ponzi scheme situations uh, where they've looked at how uh, how the cryptocurrency is being used and the promises that are being made and the determinations uh, uh, that uh, this is just a, a Ponzi scheme. Uh, and then you've got other situations, and I think what, what many of us are thinking about is Is there just are these just plain unregistered securities? Um, and there's arguments on both sides of it. We do have a, uh, a, a particularly well-known uh, legal test, uh, which consists of a whole bunch of different factors that we'll look at to come to the conclusion of whether you have a security or not. And I think, again, when we're looking at the spectrum, those that have some network utility are probably less likely to ultimately be deemed to be a security um, but those that are being used solely as a mechanism for raising uh, money uh, for future investments, uh, is, that's going to be a much rarer area of the law. Um, it would be nice, and I've been saying this for the last three years, if the SEC would come out with some basic guidance, because I, I just hate to see um, a lot of people, a lot of the time and the activity that's happening new. Have, go through a process of being unwound at a later date should they finally come out with something. Uh, and that means that people get hurt, they're going to be fined, that so people are going to pay, and it's not going to be a pretty situation. Uh, at the same time, and unfortunately these are the situations where the where the SEC will finally act, is when you start to see investors uh, hurt. Uh, and that's really what the, the, the SEC is there for, is to protect investors. And... Uh, I guess fortunately, fortunately on one hand, but unfortunately on the other hand, we haven't seen that kind of injury yet. Um, so that that hasn't caused them to really come to the table and uh, and uh, and take action. Now, there are rumors, there have been rumors for a number of months now that they have been looking closely at the Dow situation. Um, uh, that's arguably where people were hurt. Um, uh, but we've had other situations where there have been stolen uh, Bitcoin or uh, Ethereum or whatever that uh, and the, the marketplace is really or that I guess the community has really worked to try to do the impact of that. Um, so we're yeah. uh, it's, uh, you've got your beer in front of you this is one that you've, you've- that- Fastening the seatbelt, or I think now pulling the seatbelt tighter is probably really important because this is uh, an incredibly interesting, fast-paced and uh, probably a rocky ride we're uh, undertaking.
0: Yeah. Oh, uh, I let's see. I, there's so many follow-up questions I could potentially ask you. You gave, you gave me a lot of a lot of information just there. Um, I. You, you know my my assumption is a lot of these tokens um even if they're meant for utility are not really going to be used for uh, in a utility kind of manner that's it's more of kind of a way to go fund me for for their project and i think a lot of the tokens have this idea that they're going to have utility but i think even if they do, can can some people cop out and say, well my, my token does have utility even if it really kinda doesn't efficiently or like I feel like that's a real gray area as well.
1: Well I think at the end of the day we're gonna be, we're gonna see the application of the, the Howey test, which is the test that's that's applied by the SEC. It came out of the Supreme Court decision a number of years ago. It's been modified somewhat from time to time. But um, that's going to be the the basic analysis going to be used. Um, What uh, many issuers have done is they've moved it offshore. um, So that they, at least the initial offering itself, is um, uh, purportedly not being uh, sold to U.S. residents. So they they can take themselves out of the federal securities laws. I think there is some question as to, um, how rigorous they are in preventing those kinds of sales because that may, I, I would expect that's going to get tested at some point. Um, uh, if, if, uh, if they say, well, we're not selling to U.S. residents, but they're really not checking or doing a good job of checking whether people are, are U.S. residents, um, there may be some problems. And then there's some really interesting questions about the, the, the secondary market, the after-, after
0: Oh, yeah, uh, definitely.
1: Market sale. Um, because then suddenly they're, they're, they are being sold to U.S. residents uh, and they're often being sold on, on uh, platforms that while they may be uh, at least um, uh, on paper uh, in other countries, they still may have a presence in the United States. And the other thing is when they <laughs> – we've seen this in, in uh, several areas uh, – uh, even if it's all offshore, uh, say companies offshore – um, uh, that when, uh, there's a possibility when uh, the people who control those those pla- platforms come onshore uh, that they might, in fact, get uh, arrested. Um, uh, we saw that in the poker cases, for example, where the, the poker, the online poker companies were being um, operated out of uh, Costa Rica in particular, and uh when they would come back to the United States, um, I think one of the key players uh, arrested on that um, uh, back in uh, uh, April, what was it, two thousand and eleven or 2012, uh, um, uh, he was uh, coming back for a wedding and got off a plane in the United States I got, uh, got arrested. Uh, someone else had a house in, I believe,
0: Malibu. Right? I, I remember uh, that story. Uh, yeah, the, the that was that was a area, right? that guy. That guy, I think, lost like almost all of his Bitcoin or something. What it finally came down to, or something. I, I forget. But let me ask a quick follow up. Uh, now you know a lot of these companies uh, uh, that are that are pretty much coming up with like sister companies in like Panama or Switzerland or wherever. And they they'll do the ICO through that company, like you're describing, like offshore. Now, how do, is that going to stop, like the FBI? Or I mean, you know, because uh, eGold was offshore too, right? And they still found a way to get them. Are we going to see something similar where, you know, these people think they're protected? They have, you know, a company in a foreign country or whatever. They're doing their ICO through, you know, that subsidiary or whatever. Uh, are they actually? Is this going to Come to bite, you know, some people in the ass, and uh, at some of these cases, or is it really circumstantial, where it's really based on like how the token's being used and stuff like that?
1: Uh, if they decide that there's a violation of the securities laws happening, then the question is, is their jurisdiction? Uh, is there a way to get at the players? And Eagle case is the perfect, as you said, they uh, they were was an offshore company, but they still. Uh, uh, were able to uh, indict and prosecute the, the principal. The Eagle situation was a little bit classic in that um, the companies uh, were set up outside of the United States, but the operations were, were in Florida.
2: Oh, so the gold um, was so actually physically housed in were... Florida? Or, or where was the gold in Eagle? Yeah.
1: Um, Where's the gold? The gold... Well that that's that was a different <laughs> a different situation. The gold um, the gold was held in multiple repositories uh, around the world. Um but even that wasn't um, wasn't necessarily a barrier to prosecution. Uh, where the gold was, it was they needed a nexus to the operation, and the nexus was um, the fact that the servers and and the people running the company were located in Florida. Um, when it, I, I actually was involved in uh, g- worked on creating the way to liquidate the system after it was clear that, uh, and this is a good lesson for everyone. Once you're once you're convicted of money laundering crime, it's very difficult to go back and get regulated appropriately to conduct a business like this. It became clear that they weren't going to be able to deliberately Um, uh, in order to go forward, we had to move toward liquidation. uh, And um, one of the critical elements in that case was the government never could get to the gold while they tried to seize it uh, in the early stages of the prosecution. The gold was held in a special purpose trust for the benefit of the people who held the currency. So it was isolated and it wasn't the property of that who were indicted. So it's an interesting point. Yeah, uh, you answered a lot instructor. of questions
0: that we're going to ask you, so thank you. Uh, okay, you ready for this one? I, I know you have a lot of, you know, you're, you're talking earlier about stings and stuff like that. So let's talk local bitcoins. Who's going to jail? And if I am using local bitcoins, how do I prevent myself from going to jail?
1: Uh, it's a very good question. I think, as uh, probably many, if not all of your listeners know, that Local Bitcoins is located in Finland, so it's beyond the, the, the scope of the U.S. jurisdiction. Um, the prosecutions that we have seen to date have been U.S. residents. Um, that uh, it's when the parties have been put together using um, Local Bitcoins as the mechanism for uh, for matching. Um, buyer and seller. Uh, and uh, as I said earlier, uh, law enforcement can access local bitcoins as well as uh, anyone else. And uh, as, as I said earlier, they can create a thing. They can contact someone uh, and uh, arrange to meet and buy the Bitcoin. and uh, if they come to the conclusion that you're engaging in it as a business and you're not registered, with FinCEN, and yeah, as I said earlier, if you're not licensed as a money transmitter, um, that then sets up the case very uh, very easily for them to send you to jail. I think it's important to note, though, when you really analyze these cases, that you often find that there's something else going on, and that uh, this this 18 U.S.C. 1960 statute that I mentioned earlier, the federal criminal statute, um, is a handy tool for law enforcement to take quick action with no real substantial burden of proof, uh, proof other than you did the did the you did the transaction and you weren't appropriately regulated, which is really quite easy, um, uh, and they um, uh, and they can put somebody in jail who may be doing other things. Like, like, uh, and I think in each one of the cases that we've seen to date, uh, there's been something else happening. I think in one case, uh, someone had violated their parole on arms uh, arms charges, firearms charges. Uh, another was uh, involved in uh, internet sales of of, of drugs. Uh, so, uh. As I said, it's, it's an easy way if there's something else going on. Um, as a practical matter, um, and I think this may be leading to your next question, but I don't, hopefully I don't take the words out of your mouth, but um, registration as a money service business doesn't take any time. Uh, it takes 15, 20 minutes on the uh, It does have definite implications on the backside because you have to um, start to worry about having an anti-money laundering compliance program. You need to be concerned about filing um, currency transaction reports if you're dealing with cash and also you need to um, uh, be uh, looking for and reporting suspicious activity. And where I guess this becomes the real rub for people is that once you start looking at this activity, you really need to be collecting information about who the customer is. And that's that's the one that I think gives people a lot of heartburn in this community because, uh, you know, the thought is this is supposed to be an anonymous or pseudo-anonymous cryptocurrency you're dealing with and, so le- uh, and why should we
0: collect names? So, so let's take an example of maybe one of the listeners of this podcast who uses local Bitcoins a couple times a year just to sell Bitcoins or buy Bitcoins. If if, if I'm selling Bitcoins on local Bitcoins, I mean, what, what am I, you know, maybe like a one-time thing, I'm only, you know, selling probably less than 10000 What What am I obligated to pick up I mean, it's like a one-time thing. I'm probably not going to do it again for a long time. What, what am I really obligated
2: yeah, to do? is that personal or is that a business? Is it a money transmitter, money money services business?
1: It goes back to what I said earlier. is you know, the, the, the test is technically going to be, are you doing it as a business? Um, which may be you're charging a fee or you're doing a markup on it. Um, and if you're, if you're not doing either of those, uh, you're not a frequent seller. And you're not doing. Uh, you mentioned use ten thousand uh, dollars, which maybe somebody just has saved up for a given time period and, and decides it's time to liquidate the holdings. Um, and and let's so, if you're an individual
2: transacting in ten thousand dollars, do you have to report anything? If you're an individual transacting, if you're an individual transacting in ten thousand dollars over local bitcoins, do you have to report anything necessarily if it's personal?
1: Well, that's that's also a very good question because um if you're a money service business, which means you're engaging in, in the activity as a business, um, you're required to file what we call a currency transaction report. And this is gonna be a little bit technical of you, can bear with me. Um uh you're you're required to, to file this, this C T R and If you go into a bank and you uh, give them $10,000 to deposit, they will file a CTR on you. Likewise, if you're a a Bitcoin exchange um, uh, or you're engaging this as a business, you'd have to to make that filing. Um, If you're a, um, a merchant, Um, and you take in $10,000 in your business, somebody walks in and buys something for $10,000, you have to file what we call form 8300. This is filed by any any entity that's not subject to the Bank Secrecy Act, um, um, CTR filing requirement, but is engaged in a trade or business, they have to file this 8300. so the real question is, if you're not, if if you're not an MSB because you're not engaged in a business, presumably you're not also a business, not that's engaged in some, a non-financial institution business engaged in a, a trade or uh, uh, activity, and you don't have to file that either. So you probably don't have to. Um, I would probably, I would suggest that if anybody has any questions, I would, I would <laughs> probably consult with an attorney because uh, otherwise uh, there could be a lot of heartache uh, along the way.
2: Well, thanks for the uh, now, very thorough. I also, answer.
1: I also want to make note for people is that um, um, there's it's also against the law to break your transactions down to avoid reporting requirements. So let's say you are you're buying Bitcoin from a uh, a registered money service business. And you don't want them to report the fact that, that you're coming in with $10,000 because that's the threshold. If you go to a registered money service business and you do the transaction for $10,000, they need to file on you. So let's say you go one day and you do a transaction for $6,000 and you go back the next day and do a transaction for $5,000.
2: Structuring, yeah oh uh, that's scary
1: that's, stru- that's precisely that's structuring and the money service the the, the entity that you're doing or person you're doing business with is going to be required to file a suspicious activity report on you
2: and that's that's a Which that's a prosecutable a offense CPR: right? yeah because you can be prosecuted for that if you if they find that you did it with intent correct just doing that for for no other reason you've done nothing else wrong nothing illegal
1: that's, that's correct. And, and that any kind of interference with the process of, you know, of one's process to uh, file a CTR or a SAR is also a suspicious activity. And I'll give you a great example of that. Um, uh, Elliot Spitzer, the former governor of New York, what ultimately um, got him into trouble and led to his resignation is that he had uh, violated the Bank Secrecy Act because,
0: and I don't know how many of you remember
1: the story, but he had, was making uh, making use of uh, expensive uh, escort services. And um, he was going into his bank to send a wire to the escort service, which had a name that didn't say it was escort service, but it had, uh, it was a very generic type of a name. And uh, he, when he was told that the bank needed to report certain information, needed information from him about the transaction. He tried to tell them, ask them not to do it, not to collect the information. And the um, uh, the bank uh, got suspicious and uh, thought that he might uh, might have been the victim of blackmail. And that's why they were asking. He was asking them not to do something, and they filed a suspicious activity report. And that's really what
2: triggered uh, his uh, his downfall. Yeah, and that was what they brought Dennis Hastert down with too, was the structuring charges. And he was a he was a former senator, former yeah. He was like fifth in line for the presidency. (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah, it was a sex thing. Yeah, pedophile. Yeah. Um, So Uh,
1: there's one other there's one other statute that I should make note of as we talk about. Currency transaction reports at $10,000. We've talked about suspicious activity reports, which, if you go into a bank and you do a transaction with a bank, the threshold is $5,000 on a transaction. But if you do it with a money service business, the threshold is $2,000. There's also one other threshold, um, and that's for the funds transfer rule. And as a result of the Ripple case, we still haven't seen regulation, uh, a regulation on this, but, but as a result of the Department of Justice and the Finson Water order in, in the Ripple case, uh, it was made clear that the fund's transfer rule applies to cryptocurrency transactions. And it typically applies in the banking world to a wire transfer of $3,000 or more. And, or over $3,000. And um, uh, in the cryptocurrency world, it's a, it, if you take money and you do a transfer for someone or you give them back uh, $3,000 uh, or $3,000 worth of, of uh, Bitcoin or another virtual currency, that's going to be considered uh, a reportable incident, or I'm sorry, a report It's the record they have to create. Um, they don't file a report, but we have seen... Um, we've seen this cited as a shortcoming uh, with uh, – this has been the number one issue I've seen cited in IRS examinations of of Bitcoin exchanges, uh, where they haven't kept good records of uh, for funds transferable purposes. And the really tough piece for it, and I hope I'm not getting too far in the weeds, but this is very important stuff, is that uh, the um, – that you have to collect information not only about the seller. So if, if you're the exchanger, you're taking, somebody's bringing, uh, I'm sorry, it's not only on the buyer. So if you're coming in and you want to buy, you know, $3,000 of of, $3, of of Bitcoin, um, the exchange will have information presumably about you, um, but they also have to have information about uh, the party That you uh, are sending it to uh, if they're facilitating that transaction. So, uh, I, um, I, that's, and that's that's a big issue because you may have an exchange, as an exchanger, you may have information about the, the buyer, but you may not have information about who's going to receive the Bitcoin. So, one technique is to make sure that, you know, if you're Selling Bitcoin to someone um, as an exchange or, or doing an exchange uh, that you have as part of your terms and conditions that your that a wallet address that you're sending the Bitcoin to belongs to the, the buyer.
2: That's interesting, yeah. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people so don't read those terms and conditions. That's a huge, yeah.
1: huge issue. And, uh, and I mentioned in my comment there is that um, the IRS... Is the entity that goes in and does the examinations uh, uh, on Bitcoin exchanges or cryptocurrency exchanges uh, and uh, and as I said we've well, I've been involved with a number of uh, these examinations with clients and that's the issue that keeps coming up over and over and over again
2: yeah interesting stuff so uh Pretty much final topic. Uh, recently, hot topic, there was a bill introduced. Uh, I think it was introduced in the House. Uh, and, and it was regarding uh, entry into the country. Uh, I know normally you have to declare amounts up to $10,000. And that's like if you're carrying $10,000 cash on you or, or some sort of bearer instrument like that. You have to report it. And I know there's like if you don't fill out the form, there's five-year uh, jail term. Um, but, but this bill basically states, and, and I just read a summary article of the bill, so I, I don't know the bill itself, but basically what it said is if you enter the country, even if you hold, if you hold Bitcoin or own Bitcoin, even if you don't have means or access to it at the time, you still have to report it because technically you had it with you overseas. And additionally, uh, it goes on to say that it also increases the, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, civil forfeiture, uh, to where if you violate this provision, they can legally take all of your cryptocurrency holdings. Is is that is that accurate to the bill, and what do you think the chances of that passing are?
1: <laughs> they're all great questions. Um, this provision is included in uh, a... Uh, Larger piece of legislation that uh, has a number of provisions to amend uh, the Bank Secrecy Act, uh, as well as uh, some of the federal criminal statutes uh, in and around money laundering. Um, I, this is uh, this bill uh, gets introduced every year, and each year there's more elements that are attached to it. Uh, it's a, I would say right of passage; it's an annual right I guess, and. And, um, and as I said, each year they add some more things based on what sort of the latest, the hottest topics are. So this has ha- this happens to have been added this year to this piece of legislation, um, uh, as well as there's some other provisions in there that would affect cryptocurrencies um, uh, in the uh, uh, Bank Secrecy Act and some of the reporting requirements around them. Um, uh, I'm trying to, the chances of it passing, um, I'll, I'll deal with that question first and then we'll go to the details of the bill. The chances of it passing, it this, we've seen this bill, we've seen a bill to amend the Bank Secrecy Act introduced year after year after year. Um, the times that we see um, this legislation get accepted is when we have some extraordinary circumstances that uh, create the right environment for Uh, something to happen. Um, This year um, I have to be very honest and say that the issues going on in Washington, especially around the Russian investigations, um, the situation with the president and so on, um, depending on how all of that plays out, um, and obviously we're only in the first act of, you know, what may be a several act play here. uh, could create the right environment that will make it easier to get this kind of a bill passed. The last time we saw something like this pass was in uh, in 2001, right after 9/11, uh, and there were um, uh, major changes to the Bank Secrecy Act and our anti-money laundering structure of law was significantly revised uh, as a result of the USA Patriot Act. Uh, so. Right now, watching closely the the environment in Washington and how uh, it's going to ultimately play out uh, is I think going to be a big factor whether we see the legislation, because often what you'll see is congressmen, uh, members of Congress will start to run for cover at the end of the day, and having a strong bill to reaffirm uh, our position for truth justice in the American way uh, becomes very important. there are a couple of other factors that I think could lead passage, and it's possible that this provision and some of the other provisions dealing with cryptocurrencies could be broken off and passed another piece of legislation, one of which is the ransomware issue. It's obviously been huge. A lot of people don't fully understand. They see Bitcoin as being something bad because it facilitates ransomware. And uh, so there could be, if we have another uh, want to cry type of a situation, uh, where that could create uh, the right environment for something to pass. Um, so I, I think those are really sort of the most critical issues that are out there. Now let's talk about this provision in particular. Um, I've sort of been through this to where they've made a change, they're trying to make a change to what you report uh, going in or out of the country. And I can tell you uh, the results have been, you know, legislation's been passed, become law, um, but um, it's taken a long time, it's still not been in, in, in put into place. And that's in the contact the prepaid cards. Um, going back, I uh, should know offhand, but I, I, um, I would have said probably 10, 12 years ago, uh, there's a provision that said that, uh, that the government should um, um, uh, require a declaration of what you have on prepaid cards when you're going in or out of the country, much like you have to fill out that form and you get um, you're go- uh, on a plane coming in or going out of the country, is whether well you have more than $10,000 in cash on you. Um, it's taken a number of years before the regulations were even proposed. And the regulations are still not final. So it's been a very, very long time and even just it's only been in the last year or two that they have come up with a mechanism to uh, be able to read the prepaid cards going across the border.
2: So so we've got a couple and of questions so th- uh, about about that provision. So like so um, what if what if because uh, you know, first of all you there's there's every chance in the world that you're not carrying that that bitcoin or any means to access that bitcoin with you when you cross the border or even the entire time you've been overseas so that that's that's one thing and and another thing is would it make a difference if the bitcoin were not owned by you instead it were held in trust or or, or something of that matter like uh like like what you were saying with e-gold would that make any difference
1: this is why i use the prepaid prepaid card example because when you have a prepaid card you've got a physical card that you're carrying across the border like you're carrying a, a bag of, of cash. Um, the problem in the prepaid space is though that a lot of these cards, you can get a card and you can load it at different times. So you might be taking a card with you across the border that has no value loaded on it and you can actually load it when you get on the other side of the border. You can call up your bank and make the transfer once you get on the other side of the border. So there's a, a real sort of fallacy on how much information you're collecting on that. Um, what's going to be incumbent upon the cryptocurrency community is to work hard to educate um, um, Congress policymakers on, you know, why this isn't really going to work and why it's not going to be effective and, you know, where are the limits here. Uh, and because from a very practical perspective, you know, when you get stumped by the Customs <laughs> Patrol, uh, um, how, how are they going to, what is, are they going to make you, they're going to access your phone, you access your computer, um, and as you, and what if you have in storage? Um, uh, there, there are lots and lots and lots of issues and I think that uh, it's a first attempt on the part of some people who are being very expansive in their reading and uh, as I've seen many times before, is it's, going to take, it's going to take some lobbying, it's going to take some real effort uh, to to get people educated and, and we, have a, we have a saying in Washington, it's easier to block legislation than it is to pass legislation.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's definitely very interesting, you know, grappling with what is in fact a borderless, uh, intangible thing, uh, because I mean, truly, you never carry Bitcoin anywhere, uh, yet it's 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 ever present and always available. So, I mean, it's it's definitely a, a new world there. So, I don't know. I don't know what that leaves us. Well,
1: and I think that, and it it, it far exceeds anything that we've ever done before, when you go across the border, you're not asked, you know, how much do you have in your bank account? That's true. And I said, as I said, it's going to be incumbent upon the community to make the right arguments
2: You're not asked uh, what your, as your net, net worth is. Goes. I'm
1: sorry?
2: You're not asked what your net worth is.
1: Yeah. No, you're not, you're not asked what your net worth is. You're not asked what bank accounts you have. You're not asked what's in those bank accounts. And that's effectively what's being asked. Here, I, I think there are a lot of people. I, I, I think that there. You have to understand that that um, uh, many people, uh, especially those who are not on the call today, are still very ignorant in their understanding of of cryptocurrencies and how they work and how you how you own them, where you own them. You know, do you have them on your phone? When you say you have them on your phone, what does that really mean? Um, um, so that I I think as people become better educated and understand and parallels are drawn to, say, bank accounts, um, uh, that I think people will understand better, and policymakers will understand better that this goes well beyond anything that's reasonable.
0: So, uh, Carol... That's
1: my own personal... I should say that's my own personal view oh, yeah. <laughs> but I have been in Washington a long time, okay. and I know how you 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 have to go and deal with these kinds of issues.
0: So th- that was great. You you did a great job answering our questions. I I really appreciate your time. What did we miss? What what didn't we ask that we should have uh or is there anything else that you would like to share? Uh before yeah.
1: <laughs> Oh, that's that is such a loaded question. Um I, obviously this uh, there's um there're many moving pieces here and we didn't even start to get into issues around consumer protection. Um, which I think is going to be another area um, that uh, we're going to have to deal with this uh, in this area in the not too distant future. Um, uh, but uh, I think we've just scratched the surface in terms of what the laws are like and what the what what's required. Um, um, this is not the kind of thing you you don't learn you don't learn cryptocurrencies in a day, and you certainly don't learn uh, uh, the regulatory scheme in a day. I do think it's very important and I appreciate, I think you had a lot of very thoughtful questions. I think it was a great way to lead your uh, audience uh, through some very tough questions. Uh, And these are really, some of these are really vital as we're seeing with these prosecutions. Uh, It's important to understand the statutes, the regs, um, and uh, we're likely to be doing a, another um, uh, boot camp very shortly uh, in, uh, for virtual currency companies, and it's really geared around the Bitcoin exchanges, especially those that are working off of.
0: And uh, where where you
1: know, would that be? Uh, it's a good question. We may do it in multiple places. Maybe in Atlanta. The country. Um, uh, Atlanta. We our last one was in Atlanta about a year ago, and we would be more than happy to come to Atlanta if we uh, we have uh, enough people who will sign up. And uh, um, so and, I, and then we would also consider doing it in some other places in the country too.
0: So, so I know you might. Uh, we have something tentative, kind of near mid July, where you might be coming down to Atlanta to give a kind of like a preview of your boot camp and also like a presentation of like what you can give is that uh is that something you're you're still thinking about
1: <laughs> uh, it, it, uh, yes it definitely is awesome i think we've set uh, yeah i think is it the the 12th of of um uh july for uh, uh meet up with the uh um I is it a Bitcoin or blockchain uh group. i yep. uh, and then uh I believe we're going to probably on the thirteenth uh in our offices in, in Atlanta uh sponsor a four hour um, um what I would say is more refresher course um, for those who have already have their sort of feet on the ground from a regulatory perspective, uh, and want to talk about some specific questions. Um, some of the focus on uh, specific, you know, when do you file a SAR? You know, what does the kind of act, what kind of activity are you looking for that will cause you to file a SAR? Um, it's really building on the boot camp, uh, and I think uh, again. Uh, Mike, work with you on uh, figuring out uh, time and place, but we the De- keep itself definitely. A and I'll, it's, a, it's a two-day course. That we actually add a third day to it because I find that a lot of people really need the third
0: day. And, and I'll uh, make sure it. I'll make sure to post that up on uh, right when, as soon as we get a location and a event uh, planned out. I'll make sure to put that on the Atlanta Blockchain Meetup group so everyone can find it. <clears throat> so, uh, Carol. Uh, thank you so much. Where can people find out yes. more about you? What's your Twitter? What's, uh, if someone wants to get in contact with you, what's the best way? You can give out an email, whatever you'd um, like.
1: Uh, uh, email or texting is the best way. Texting is actually the best way to get me. Um, uh, uh, but you can also access my my profile on the Baker Hostetler uh, homepage. Um, my email address is um, C. Van Cleef, that's C, V as in Victor, A, N as in Nancy, C L E E S as in Frank, at bakerlaw.com, and it's just the way it sounds, B-A-K-E-R-L-A-W.com. Um, my Twitter, uh, um, I believe, is carol underscore Van Cleef.
0: Okay. I uh, do you tweet a lot?
1: Um, probably not as much as I should. <laughs> I I'm a perfectionist, so I uh, like to make sure whatever tweet I put out there is sort of perfect, and I find it takes <laughs> me probably more time than so, I often have.
0: So I'm I'm following you now. All right, great. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Carol. It was a pleasure, and uh, Thanks, we'll Carol. we'll be talking to you later, uh, and I'll I'm, we'll look well, forward to you seeing you much. in uh in mid July.
1: Great.
0: So, Mike, I think uh, the knots has been found.
2: Yeah, and our AML uh, government-mandated paperwork's been filed.
0: Thanks for propagating. Bye.
2: (laughs) Bye. (laughs)